0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Taking Control, the ADHD podcast on RashPixel FM. I'm Pete Wright, and right over there is Nikki Kinzer. Hello, everyone. Hello, Pete Wright. Hi, Nikki Kinzer. Happy day. Oh, glorious day. It's a great day. It is a great day. It's fall. It's the, the weather is perfect where I am. I It's so perfect that it makes me care less about the, where the weather is everywhere else. I just I'm in a bubble right now, and I want to just live there.
1: Total bubble. It's October. You know what Uh, October is?
0: It's ADHD Awareness Month.
1: Yes. And breast cancer awareness. We've got two things, two big things things. going on. We
0: could be aware of a lot of things, a lot
1: of different things. But yes, it's October. It's a. I'm going to focus on the ADHD awareness piece of it all. All right. And uh, in the month of October, we've got some great guests on our show.
0: We sure do. And we're starting with one today who is fantastic. Uh, And we're talking about something that uh, makes my brain just light up, Nikki Kinzer. It Uh makes it light up. And as we've been talking about this, we find that uh, so many people have been living with this experience and uh, only now find that they have words to put to it they have a name to call it and uh, as we all know once you can name your pain uh, you can find a way to get through it and so i'm very excited to talk about rejection sensitive dysphoria today on the show with an unreal uh, guest uh, so so perfect to be talking about this with us. Uh, But before we get into that, head over to TakeControlADHD.com to get to know us a little bit better. You can listen to the show right there on the website or subscribe to the mailing list right there on the homepage and we'll send you an email with the latest episode each week. You can connect with us on Twitter or Facebook at TakeControlADHD. And if this show has ever touched you, and I am almost sure... 99.999% 99.999% sure that the show today will touch you, uh, then we invite you to consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com slash the ADHD podcast. When you join us there, you're invited to join the uh, Discord online community and the Facebook private member community where you can share your uh, ADHD story and get support tips, tactics, strategies, uh, and, and just that feeling of family that we all uh, love and uh, and cherish. I know I absolutely do. Uh, at the higher levels, you get access to the monthly live stream, uh, I should say weekly live stream, the weekly live stream of this very podcast. You get access to the show without any of Uh, This kind of uh, messaging, no ads, no sponsorship talk, you just get the show in your own private feed over on Patreon. There's a lot you get access to, including uh, at at, uh, the higher level, a uh, monthly workshop with Nikki Kinzer and access to the Hangout, the Happy Hour Hangout with Nikki and Pete, which is always an incredibly fun and uh, experience with us on video. So uh, there's a lot you get used to uh, over there at uh, patreon.com slash the ADHD podcast. We hope you'll consider becoming a supporter there. It is thanks to the support of patrons that we've been able to bring transcripts, full transcripts of every episode of the show that is uh, that are available on the website and continued growth of guests just like the one we have today. Shall we get going?
1: Sounds good to me. Let's go.
0: Dr. Bill Dodson is an award-winning board-certified psychiatrist and specialist in adult ADHD. While Dr. Dodson has been on the faculties of Georgetown University and the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, he is primarily a clinical practitioner who tries to combine evidence-based practice techniques with practice-based evidence. In addition to being named a Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and recipient of the National Maxwell J. Schleifer Award for Distinguished Service to persons with disabilities, Dr. Dodson is one of two experts from the U.S. to the World Anti-Doping Program for the Development of Guidelines for the Use of ADHD Stimulant Medications in the World's Athletes. Most important, Dr. Dodson hails from Greenwood Village, Colorado, my very own homeland, which before he even opens his mouth to speak, makes (laughs) him a quality individual. Dr. Dodson, welcome to the ADHD podcast.
2: Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Welcome. It is great to have you here. And one of the things that uh, really strikes me about your work is, well, and I know you do a lot of different subjects. You talk about a lot of different things, but this rejection-sensitive dysphoria has really hit home in a lot of different ways with my clients, with our listeners. And if you were to actually Google rejection-sensitive dysphoria in Google, you are going to come up with your name. In some way, one of the things I really want to start with is just the definition of what this means. What is rejection sensitive dysphoria?
2: The term is really quite old. It uh, comes from the uh, late 1950s, early 1960s, um, back before anybody was really talking about ADHD. Um, it was a uh, the hallmark symptom of what was then called. A typical depression or non-typical depression, Um, the reason that it wasn't a typical depression was that it had nothing to do with a mood disorder. It was ADHD. Um, The uh, original term never got associated with ADHD at the time. So that's why you can't find anything. Uh, Anything before about 1984, 85, um, just isn't cataloged. It isn't findable in a uh, internet search or something like that. And when Paul Winder, the guy who did the original writing on it, uh, wrote about it, he never used the term rejection-sensitive dysphoria. In fact, he didn't call it anything. But he did use the medications um, to treat ADHD. Uh, in fact, there are a couple of studies uh, that compare the uh, monamine oxidase inhibitors to Ritalin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's where the association first came from. But Winder was impressed with the fact that emotional dysregulation was probably the most impairing form or the most impairing aspect of ADHD for children, adolescents, and adults. Uh, In my practice, when I ask people, what about ADHD is most impairing, most disturbing, most disruptive to your life? About a third of people will say rejection sensitivity. About a fourth of people will list um, sleep disturbances. Mm-hmm. So what you have is more than half of adolescents and adults listing things that are not diagnostic criteria of ADHD. Right. Um, the diagnostic criteria are strictly behavioral. Uh, they're written by, designed for researchers, not people like the three of us. Uh, It's all things that you can see, count, measure, do statistical analysis on. And they purposely ignore some really important things like emotions, like sleep, like how people with ADHD think. Uh, They don't want to talk about that because it doesn't make nice, clean research.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So uh, when I was listening to my patient, Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you hear the same thing from a thousand people in a row, You may not understand it, but you know it's important. The definition I use on my checklist uh, is literally out of an old psychiatric textbook from back in the 60s. It asks, for your entire life, have you always been much more sensitive than other people you know to rejection, teasing, criticism, or your own perception that you've failed or fallen short? About 99% of my adolescent and adult patients not only check that, they underline it, they put stars by it. Uh, my personal favorite was the guy who wrote, uh, this was the cause of my first three divorces. Um,
3: wow.
2: It's tremendously disruptive. Now, nobody, whether they have ADHD or not, likes being rejected or criticized. We're talking about something that's in a whole different league. This goes beyond not liking it to it being catastrophic. Uh, The person can't continue to function. Um, It takes over their lives for hours to days, Um, and it's it's an overwhelming emotional experience that people can't describe. Uh, That's uh, another aspect of it. Is that um, in fact that's where the word dysphoria. Uh, originally came from is that it's literally Greek for unbearable. Uh, the people who did the original work uh, wanted to get how severe this emotional reaction was right up there in the neck. Of course, it was hard and they put it in <laughs> Greek. So it we was pretty much lost on everything. Um, but that's what happened over and over again. The researchers were pestering. The research subjects, what does it feel like? What does it feel like? And finally, over and over again, people would say, look, man, back off. I can't find the words to tell you what this feels like, but I want you to know I can hardly stand it. Mm. And it was this unbearable nature that got really the, the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rejection sensitive, difficult, difficult to bear.
0: So as as long as you've been working with folks, and I should say that my mind right now, I'm I'm the one living with ADHD uh, on on our show, and my mind is fireworks right now. And you've just explained uh, much of my summer uh, be, that that I felt like I couldn't really put words to. So this is this is both exhilarating and and um, uh, eye opening. Uh, as you're listening to uh, you know your clients or your your patients, the folks that you're working with who are starting to talk about this, what are some consistent threads of, of their experience, right? I mean, we, we have to have been able to build more of a tapestry of, of kind of shared experience in the last 25 years.
2: Well, over-interpretation. People with ADHD go through life easily wounded by things which may or may not be real. And, and, uh, it's somebody's perception. It doesn't have to be real, uh, but your perception is your reality. What you perceive to be real is real to you. So for people with ADHD, it can be you're walking down the hall and somebody didn't say hello. Uh, their boss may have been elsewhere, or whatever. For the person with ADHD, they can they immediately catastrophize it and say, that person hates me, they didn't say hello, they don't want to be around me, that sort of thing. It's this catastrophic reaction, uh, overinterpretation. Um, some people will end up being diagnosed as being borderline. Because uh, they're constantly seeing rejection in everything. Because it is so painful, so agonizing when it happens, people become vigilant for it. They want to make sure that they're prepared for the next time they go into one of these tailspins. And so what you're looking for, you tend to find. Um, so that they're constantly having these emotional storms when they perceive that someone has withdrawn their love, approval, or respect, which indeed does sound very borderline. Uh, and it takes a while. Uh, as you know, it takes eight or ten hours of sitting with somebody to really you know, look at their ego strengths and, th- and things like that. We find out these people are not borderline at all. They've got good relationships. Uh, they're loving, caring people. They're not abusing drugs and alcohol. It's that They've got rejection sensitivity. Um, so it, it can. And again, most uh, mental health professionals are trained to see the borderline character organization and not ADHD.
0: Well, that, that is actually the fascinating uh, thing that you're, you're calling out here. And I, I wonder you, what you see in terms of trends of mental health professionals who are adopting rejection sensitivity as something in their conversation to have about ADHD. Why are you an outlier?
2: Medicine is not a rational field. It doesn't perceive, and people don't make decisions according to what makes sense or to what they see over and over out in the real world. Medicine is an authority-based field. You do something because your attending and your training told you that's the way to do it. You do something because that's what is sanctioned in the scientific literature. It's authority-based. So if there, if somebody hasn't heard of this before, as far as they're concerned, not only does it not exist, it is suspect as well. Mm-hmm. They haven't heard about it, therefore, there's something wrong with it. There's no authority behind it. And rejection-sensitive dysphoria, uh, one of the reasons why it was actively avoided back in the 60s is you can't research it. One, it's not always there. Uh, it comes and it goes, uh, usually with the suddenness of lightning. You you when know, one instant, the person's fine, and the next, they're in a catastrophic emotional state. Uh, people tend to hide it. They're embarrassed by it. Uh, they don't like being thought of as head cases. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest one for researchers is, when, even when it does happen, happens right in front of you, you can't measure it. Um, and measurability is necessary for uh, publishability. Um, it's truly publish or perish. So they're not going to waste their time on something they can't get published. Simple as that. Hmm. So That's this funny. whole, I mean, I've tried to get other people interested in this just to validate that, yeah, people with ADHD do identify with this. And I have not been able to get anybody willing to even go that far because it's not publishable.
1: It's just amazing to me because as a, as an ADHD coach, I mean, that is the first thing I hear is the shame, the embarrassment, the, um, I'm less than why do this? I, I, every single time I do this, it doesn't work out. And they're always referring to their past and it, it is so emotionally charged. Um, I am so thankful uh, that you're bringing this to light, and you've been bringing this to light for many, many years. I mean, we're just now having you on the show, but I know you've you've you talk about this and and bringing it to the attention of our listeners. It, it gives them, I I believe it will give them some. I don't know if it's a reason, but just some explanation of what's happening.
2: People who have ADHD identify wrongly with this concept.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh,
2: About a year and a half ago, um, somebody took one of the articles that I wrote and posted it on that August uh, Journal uh, Reddit. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: In in their uh, subreddit on ADHD. Uh, Within the next month, it got more comment, more positive comment Mm
3: -hmm. than
2: any other topic they've ever had. Um, Wow. It was just a tremendous outpouring of people things after that it's this is real i'm not alone mm-hmm. and so it really touches a lot of people
0: i i find it's interesting too that i i i feel like i've manufactured um well i'm not going to say manufactured that's not fair this is it, it's a thing another thing that we talk about but for me it seems to manifest and and uh, coming as a podcaster somebody who needs that sort of external validation uh you know both personally, but also professionally, right, to grow a business. Uh, and I find that when I don't get when I don't see feedback, if I don't see somebody commenting saying, hey, that was a that was a great show or that was a good idea or that was something I relate to, that can send me into what I've for a long time been calling imposter syndrome. Well, clearly, I am an imposter that I have I, I that I catalog in my head as that explicit rejection and that can send me into a, a spiral, a complete spiral. Um, just the act of not receiving any sort of feedback is the same as somebody actively rejecting me.
2: Well, you fill in the gaps with the greatest fear. And right, right. We, everybody does that. Um, people with ADHD do it uh, very, very strongly and take over their lives. And that's that's really kind of what in the introduction. When we're talking about uh, evidence-based practice, I mean, that's the gold standard. Uh, you want to do what you're doing in medicine because there's strong evidence that that's the right thing to do. But you also need you know, practice-based evidence that you have to respond to what you're seeing and hearing in front of you, patient after patient after patient. And there's a great deal in um, the canon of ADHD um, It's wrong. It's just nonsense. But nobody will confront it. Um, it's, there's a lot of stuff that I was taught. Um, and indeed, if anything is taught, it's, it's just really wrong, but nobody confronts it. I Again, mean, ADHD has been in a bunker mentality since its inception. Uh, it's a um, concept, um, that has been attacked. I can't think of another topic, whether in medicine or elsewhere, uh, or otherwise um that has as much disinformation, outright nonsense, um fake news, just attack after attack after attack. And so the field does have sort of a self-protective bunker mentality.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so it's there are a lot of things that um make change uh and new ideas uh that are even the slightest bit controversial, hard for um people to accept.
0: Well, you just uh, outlined another show. We, I'm sure we would like to have you back to talk about. <laughs> uh, back on, on RSD, can you talk a little bit about uh, differences you might see between men and women and their relationship with rejection? I haven't seen that much difference. Okay.
2: Men are much more likely to uh, hide and stuff their emotions than women, whether they have ADHD or not. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can tell with my patients, uh, men are just as deeply wounded um, by rejection sensitivity, as women are. It's a uh, equal opportunity destroyer. And, and so it, since most people don't see it coming, uh, they can't prepare for it. Uh, even when they do, it still can take over. What, what people try to do is protect themselves from it ever happening in the first place.
3: Mm.
2: And you see uh, what actually ends up to be almost personality type. Uh, arising out of this. Uh, some people try to be perfectionists. Above reproach, always the most admired, accomplished person in the room, um, but it's a trap they have to keep on producing all the time. Uh, and they're constantly running scared lest somebody discover them. It's sort of the imposter syndrome. Uh, some people become people pleasers. Um, They have the ability that within two seconds of meeting somebody new, they can tell you exactly what that person likes, approves of, will praise, and that's what they give them. Uh, So much so that very commonly they lose track of what they wanted for their own lives. Um, You'll see this is one of the places where women, I think, are different. Um, a lot of my female patients will get out into their 40s. Uh, the kids are moving on with their lives. Um, and the mother has literally given her life, to the family, to the kids. Uh, and she says, okay, when is it my turn?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, when is somebody going to um, do this for me? And the thing is the family is very happy with being constantly catered to and taken care of by mom. And there's a tremendous amount of resentment um, that comes out because how they chose to protect themselves from rejection sensitivity, again, backfires on them.
1: Well, I was going to say, because now they feel more rejected, you know, right? And more unappreciated or appreciated. (laughs) Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm not not important. Right. Um, Important enough. Right. Um, Some people give up trying. Uh, There are slackers of the world, completely capable people, likable people. Um, But the whole notion of going out there in front of everybody else and trying and failing is terrifying. Uh, They've done it. It hurts too much. I'll sit this one out. Thank you. I've got dozens and dozens of people in my practice uh, who have never been on a date. The notion of asking somebody on a date or just getting that close to somebody. And that the relationship could end unhappily or whatever is terrifying. I've mean, had people who have never been able to apply for a job because just the possibility of not getting the job is so daunting. Uh, it, I've had a lot of people who literally can get to the door of the business and have a panic attack, and that's what that's what happens is they get diagnosed with panic or phobias or so, something like that when. What's underneath it is this fear of being rejected. So there's a lot of different ways that people try and protect themselves from this storm of emotions.
0: Uh, we, we have a, a, a timely question I want to insert here from, uh, because we're, we're having sort of a gendered conversation, I, I think, and, and uh, we have somebody who asked how this uh, shakes out with trans folks. Any, any experience working with uh, uh, trans individuals?
2: If there's a group of people that has had to deal with rejection, it's trans folks. Yeah, they deal with "you're not what we had in mind" all the time. Yeah, uh, but I don't have any personal experience. Okay, with it.
1: so these things the the people pleasers, the the just stop trying overachievers; those are all things that that are happening. When it's untreated, or is it still happening even when we're treating this? Or do you still find those things happening with folks?
2: The earlier you can intervene, the less fixed these uh, ways of approaching the world are. That's why I was talking earlier, that if a person's been this way their entire life, it almost is character logic. It is part of who they they are, part of how they view their relationships with other people, What's possible versus what's not possible that sort of thing it is a fundamental part of themselves that they just assume that well, that's me rather than it's something that's part of ADHD it has a name, it has a treatment it's as my patients say it's a thing
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: and, and I'm not alone with it um this is not my fault so that that helps just to know um. I'm not alone with
1: it. I have a feeling many, many listeners are nodding their heads. This is me. I get this. I feel it. We know it, right? If you have ADHD, I think I read somewhere in one of your articles, it's almost 100% of people with ADHD experience rejection sensitivity. I mean, oh, right.
2: this, it's about 99%.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is part of it. So, what do, what can we do to help?
2: When I first started thinking about this and noticing the pattern 15, 20 years ago, um, and went back and found that. Paul Winder, the guy who designed the ADHD syndrome back in the 60s, that he'd already thought about it, written about it, uh, and had used medications called monoamine oxidase inhibitors um, to treat uh, ADHD. Um, uh, They were um, our very first antidepressant medications long before 20 years before Prozac or something like that. If you look at one uh, called Parnate, uh, it's only one chemical bond different from amphetamine. Uh, You have to sort of look at it for a while to see how the two molecules are different. And um, he noticed that probably the biggest uh, uh, benefit that people got was not so much in their ability to pay attention, but in their emotional dysregulation that their emotions could just completely and suddenly run amok on them. That didn't happen either. Uh The problem with ammonia and oxidase inhibitors uh, is that they're difficult to use. Uh, you have to avoid certain foods. You have to avoid practically every antidepressant medication under the sun, over-the-counter cold sinus and hay fever medications, cough syrups. There's a whole list of medications you have to avoid. You also have to avoid uh, foods that are aged. Uh, rather than cook, So this is aged cheeses, aged sausages, pickled herring, that sort of thing. Um, but um, they are excellent antidepressants and excellent anti-anxiety medications and the treatment of choice for um, rejection-sensitive dysphoria.
1: Would it help with other ADHD symptoms?
2: It, it does help with um, uh, focus, distractibility, mm-hmm. Uh, lowers impulsivity, that sort of thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but not as dramatically as the standard stimulants or alpha agonists do. It really does end up treating... So this is the type of medication that you know, if somebody came in and the only thing that was impairing about their ADHD was their rejection sensitivity, it would be a drug I would consider using much earlier in the process. About six or 7 years ago, um, I just stumbled onto the fact that there's another category of FDA-approved ADHD medication called alpha agonists. Mm-hmm. Um, the full name is alpha-2-specific adrenergic agonists.
1: Wow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a real thumb-twister. Okay. Uh, this is in Tuniv, CapVe, um, Clonidine, Lophacine. uh, uh They've been FDA-approved for the treatment of the hyperactive component of ADHD for 35-40 years. Um, And a significant percentage of people uh, can have their rejection sensitivity almost completely removed by an alpha agonist, which is much easier to use. Um, The actual robust response rate is disappointingly low. Uh, In the United States, we have two alpha agonists, clonidine and guanfacine and the response rate to either one is about 30%. So if I chose to put somebody on clonidine, 30% of them are going to go, wow, this is life-changing, but 70% are going to go, what's the big
3: hmm.
2: Um, So there's a much higher failure rate and success rate. Um, but the people who respond to each molecule are, is a different group. So if the first one doesn't work, you can try the other one, and you'll still have another thirty percent chance of, of very robust response. So, if you end up trying both of them sequentially, not together, um, you get about a fifty-five to sixty percent uh, robust success rate. Um, to put that in perspective, um, that's better than any antidepressant has. It's better than any antipsychotic. It's better than any um, anti-anxiety medication has. So it's. When you add them up, it's a pretty good response for psychiatry. But what people um, talk about is that when the medication works, the way it's, I think, the best description I've heard from several patients is that it's like putting on emotional armor, that you still see the same events, the same facial expressions and things like that, that last week would have triggered rejection sensitivity and a catastrophic emotional experience. But this week, it just sort of bounces off, or you watch it fly past, and it doesn't wound you. Now, that's one of the few common descriptive words is that people experience the pain of rejection sensitivity as if it was a physical wound. You'll see people clutch their chest, you know, like somebody just punched them in the chest. Or um, One of my patients says, it's like being hit in the chest with a cannonball.
0: It's a- it is. It takes your breath away. That's the experience.
2: And that the now it, they aren't wounded. And how tremendously freeing that is um, to be able to get on with your life. You now, somebody who has never been able to apply for a job, in fact, I just had to refill this guy's prescription, um, now has been with the same company two years. He's gotten two promotions. Um, he's getting a degree at night. I mean, his life has just blossomed because he doesn't lose days to weeks to these catastrophic rejection-sensitive dysphoria episodes. He's not afraid to ask a girl out on a date, which he was terrified to do before. So it's, it basically frees up the person to be who they are. They're not always playing defense. Um, so it, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Meditation alone, though, is usually not completely adequate. What people have been like this. They've had these attitudes and responses every day, all day, their entire lives. They're habitual, they're, they're logic. And so they do need some behavior management, so some cognitive behavioral uh, treatment to understand that these weren't uh, arrows bandwidth,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, that they were an internal perception. It wasn't that somebody hated them or rejected them or whatever. It, they have to own it as, this was a distorted perception on my part. And they have to rework their whole relationship with other human beings. Uh, that, to them, was all that they'd ever known before. They never questioned it. That's me. That's the way the world is. And now they have to come back and go, well, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but i found that unless you give them the protection from those catastrophic emotional experiences, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy goes nowhere. Um, I had uh, two people in my practice. Each one had been in psychoanalysis for more than 10 years each, um, de- trying to deal with their rejection sensitivity. They were the first ones to admit they had made zero progress in 10 years. And within two weeks, the medications gave them a new line.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, but they still had to come back and redo their whole perception of what human relationships is all about. It's a big deal. Um, wow. Because yeah. you know, that's all that somebody's ever known. They need somebody else to sort of tell them, to guide them through what through human it. relationships are all about.
3: Right,
2: uh, right. They really have very little um, direct experience with
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's where you guys come in.
1: Well, I was going to ask, because as a coach, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm a coach. So I'm curious to know how can somebody like myself and other coaches out there help clients work through their RSD?
2: And you stand for what it's like not to have to contend with the impairments of ADHD. I really like people with ADHD. They're wonderful people. Incredibly bright, incredibly creative, wonderful problem solvers, quit, zany sense of humor, uh, tremendously loyal individuals. Uh, they're your friend. They're the most loyal friend you've ever had. But they, people with ADHD have to expend so much of their life energy compensating for ADHD that even though they may be accomplished, you know, I look back and say, what did it cost them to get that accomplishment? the old saying that they have to work twice as hard for half as much. Um, so with the treatment, um, I, I tend to use the word management of ADHD.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's You're not going to change the ADHD. You're going to help somebody manage it to their, to their best ability so that it doesn't suck the energy out of their lives the way it did before. So helping them manage their lives Freeze up energy uh, that was being lost to symptoms and contending with things so that they can reinvest that in their lives. And that's a lot of what a coach does. Um, Boy, this gets off into yet another uh, program. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that you'll hear from people with ADHD is that on a fundamental level, they feel as if they are not from this planet. They are not like the other 90% of people who are neurotypical. Um, They think differently. Their cognitive style is totally different. They process emotions differently. Um, They experience the world differently. And that's where they get into a lot of trouble is they tell themselves that they are wrong to be different. Because the world tells them they're wrong to be different. Uh, they're wrong to because they don't learn like other people in school, that sort of thing. Shame about who I am as a person is fundamental, I, I would say almost universal, um, to the experience of ADHD. Uh guilt is where you feel bad about something you did. Shame is when you feel bad about who you are. And mm-hmm. as such, it's much more profound. And so that that really is really the The two pieces of managing ADHD is somebody in the game on a level neurologic playing field with some medication. Uh, You have to find somebody who knows what they're doing with the medications to get a good outcome, but look for that person. But medications alone are never enough, ever. Uh, The old slang is that pills don't give skills.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, You then have to learn not how to be neurotypical, but how to be the best person with ADHD that you can be, to learn how you're different, how to manage that, how to actually take the advantage of that sometimes. And that's where um, coaches come in. You know, most therapists are not trained in ADHD. They're going to offer the techniques that they were trained to do. Again, it's an party based field. Um, And that they see working for their depressives, their anxious patients, people like that, Um, but they don't work for people with ADHD. And so it basically, unless the person really is well-informed about ADHD, they're setting the person up for yet another failure.
1: It's so true because I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I've gone to therapy, but it didn't work. It's not working. They don't understand my ADHD or they know very little of it. It's very true. I I do hear that a lot. Well,
0: and by the same token, the number of folks who come back and and say, well, I've taken my medication, but now I don't know what to do. Like my doctor just prescribed. And now what? Like there's there is no next after the prescription. And that's that's sort of the other side of the same challenge.
2: And that actually is what a lot of people are working on who are not researchers. Um, the researchers have led us off into a uh, blind alley. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people who are working on this. Uh, uh, Dr. Wes Crenshaw in Kansas is working on it. Michael Manos at the Cleveland Clinic is working on it. Um, about what do you do after the medications are running. Um Somebody knows what they're doing with the medications can get them perfect in a month. Then what? What do you right. do after that?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Well, and something I want to highlight that you said that is so important to me. Um, and when I work with clients, and I think Pete, you would say this when we're talking about the show too, is the mission here is not to be a neurotypical. It's not to be like everybody else. You know, we, we want to accept ourselves for who we are. We want to accept the ADHD as, as it's affecting us and seeing us. And, and you are who you are. Be who you are. You're not trying to fit a square into a circled world. It's okay, you know, be that square, you know, work with it, be, uh, and get these resources and, and tools that you can have and support. I see connection with with other people being a huge part of managing ADHD. Yeah,
2: that's, that's where it starts, especially dealing with shame, Yeah, um, which is one of those things you have to do right up front because I say somebody who's full of shame never asks for help to begin with. They don't show up at the um, any doctor, any coach's office because they're so full of shame. Um, and the, the only way of dealing with that is being with other people who accept you as you are. Uh, that's why Chad is so important. That's why NADA is so important. Uh, why coaching is so important is to help people start the process of accepting themselves as they are. Um, one of the things I've always been impressed with was that medical school and residency did not teach me to ask the right questions. They taught me how to you know, ask the questions necessary to do my paperwork, but not to really understand my patient. One of the questions that I've learned um, that I need to ask every patient is look back over your entire life, dredge up all the memories you can, If you've been able to get engaged and stay engaged with literally any task of your life, have you ever found anything that you couldn't do? Somebody with ADHD will sort of stop and think and say, no, you know, if I can get engaged with something and stay engaged, I can do anything. It's one of the frustrations that I have with myself, that people have with me, is I'm so inconsistent. Sometimes I'm a world-beater, and sometimes I'm off in a lot of But when I'm engaged, I've never found anything I couldn't do. That really sort of puts the lie to the notion of this as a disorder or a disease. Uh, Now, I'm not going to get off into this, you know, the gift of ADHD. Boy, what an explosion that would be. But um, if if you want to start a really dull argument, that's the way to do it. Um, <laughs> um, but what it says is there are times when people with ADHD do not have executive function deficits or or whatever. They can do anything, and then that's what we ought to be focusing on. Let's reproduce those times when people can do anything. If you look at all of the therapies up to this point, they have focused on what people with ADHD couldn't do, and then so sort of we're going to teach you how to do what you can't do. And it ends up being a failure. Yet another failure. So that's where the, the newer therapies are going, is looking at those times when things go spectacularly right. And so it's, it's two pieces of management of ADHD. You level the neurologic playing field uh, with the medication, and most People will benefit from two, not one, a stimulant and an alpha agonist. And then you learn the rules of the game that you're in. And that part's been left out up till now.
0: Well, that is a is, first of all, a fantastic message. That, that hits me just right. And I uh, sure appreciate your time today. And I, I hope, I hope that this is not the last time we see you. Will you come back and talk to us about some of these other? I mean, you're the one who planted the seed for these conversations. You're sort of obligated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no pressure though <laughs> uh,
0: this has been wonderful Where is there a place online you would like to point folks who want to get to know a little bit more about your work
2: the place where I publish the most is a website called attitudemag.com and it's com. and just um, put my name in the search bar and it'll bring up over 100 articles Beautiful. Um, try and write an article for them every issue.
0: Outstanding. Well, I know that we have already some big fans uh, of yours in our community and, and Attitude uh, Mag is, of course, a, a favorite of ours as well. So uh, thank you so much, Dr. Dotson, for your time and attention today. We sure appreciate it. Thank
1: you. Glad thank to be you here. for being here.
0: And- and thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. On behalf of Dr. Bill Dodson and Nikki Kinzer, I'm Pete Wright. And we'll catch you next time right here on Taking Control, the ADHD podcast.